Beloved, our text for this evening, or this morning rather, is from uh, Ruth chapter 2, the first three verses. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Well, these verses are, in a sense, the preparation the introduction of Boaz before Ruth actually meets him. In light of communion next Lord's Day, it's a fitting passage to look at as we prepare our hearts to meet personally with the greater Boaz, with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, children, I don't know if you remember from last Sunday where we left Ruth and Naomi. They had come back to Bethlehem, hadn't they? And as they come back into Bethlehem, what do we read? What time was it? It was the time of the barley harvest. And the barley harvest spoke of hope. It spoke of new life. It spoke of that which was coming. It spoke of God's provision. They've come back to the house of bread. And it's in this place, in this place of Bethlehem, the place of God's provision, that Naomi and Ruth will meet the one who will change things around for them. They will come face to face with their kinsman, with their Redeemer. He wasn't just Naomi's Redeemer. He was Ruth's Redeemer as well as we read in the chapters that follow. Isn't that the parallel for us this morning as as well, for sinners who have come? And next Lord's Day will come to the place of, of God's provision, the place of God's promise. And not just that, to God Himself, to the Redeemer Himself. And for those who come there, you have learned, I trust, the emptiness of life in Moab. We saw last time that there was truth in in Naomi's bitter complaint that she, she came home empty. But that was only so that she might be filled with the Lord Himself. And that's how we come to the Lord as well, don't we? We come empty, renouncing our own righteousness and clinging to the righteousness of the greater Boaz, so that we might be filled with Him, with His grace. Maybe you look between the time of last communion and this communion. And your conclusion upon your life is this, the Lord has dealt severely with me. 
Rather, I have dealt severely with the Lord. I have backslidden. And so in His severe mercy, He's bringing me back to Himself again, to His banquet of tender mercy. Maybe you're like Ruth. You've come from Moab. You approach the place of fullness. A stranger who does not know what the future holds, and yet... You come in faith, trusting that God will care for you, that God will feed you with Himself. Because He is your God, and His people are your people. His place is your place. You come with the light of the gospel shining in the midst of the darkness of your sin and your circumstances. You come returning repenting, coming back to the Lord, no matter what the condition of your soul is, recognizing that you are being drawn to Him by His grace alone, that you would not come on your own initiative. That's what we've been learning from Naomi and Ruth. This is how they come back to the place of fullness. This is how they return. This is how they repent from sin. This is how we learn that God graciously deals with souls, leading them out of sin, leading them out of Moab, to feed and to nourish and to provide and to point you this morning to the redemption that is in our kinsman redeemer, the greater Boaz. Well, let me introduce you to him this morning so that next Lord's Day, You can meet him personally. You can sit at his feet. You can feed on him and be filled with him. Our theme this morning is this, finding hope in the kinsman. Finding hope in the kinsman. First of all, in his person. Secondly, in his grace. Thirdly, in his provision, finding hope in the kinsman, in his person. Well, Naomi and Ruth settled down in Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, the dawn of a new beginning for them, for their hearts, for their livelihoods. But what will they do now? What hope do they have of putting food on the table? They are destitute, they have nothing. We saw that everything was against them. Both of them are widows. Both of them don't have any family left to provide a, an heir. At least that's what we understand when we read chapter 1. Naomi's not able to see through the darkness of, of God's providence. And Ruth's prospects are not good as a stranger, as a Moabites, as a widow. We would say their chances of survival are slim. But we need to remember that they come to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, a marker for us in the text to tell us 
that there's something about to happen. There's something about to change. Because as a result of that barley harvest, God is going to bring them together with a man named Boaz. We're introduced to the kinsman of Naomi, or rather of Elimelech, because of the barley harvest. Something big is going to happen. It's, it's like these verses are, are bursting with, with expectation. What's, what is it? Well, here it is. Here is a kinsman who is near in relation to Naomi, to Elimelech who could potentially redeem his inheritance and provide hope again for these these destitute women. Naomi and Ruth do not know it yet. But this kinsman would provide hope, the hope of redemption for them, the hope of an heir for them. Boaz is really the central character of the story as he pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the man, we could say, upon which the entire history of redemption hinges in this narrative. Just when it seems that everything is lost, God introduces this kinsman to turn things around. A faint picture of what God does in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just when it seemed that everything was darkness and everything was silent, For 400 years, God comes Himself this time in the God-man, in the Redeemer, to turn things around. In Bethlehem, no less. And so He's introduced, Boaz is, in these opening verses of chapter 2. And they would find hope in His person. That's important for us to remember this morning. Naomi and Ruth will not find hope simply in the fact that there's a barley harvest. It's not just in the benefits that they will receive from the Lord. You see, hope, spiritual hope, gospel hope is always tied to a person. It's always tied to the person of the Redeemer never tied merely to His benefits. And so what is it about the person of Boaz that sets him apart as uniquely suited to redeem Naomi and Ruth? The first thing that sets him apart is his potential to be the kinsman redeemer for Naomi. Our text introduces him this way, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's. Well, this will bode well for Naomi, someone who had the potential to be the redeemer for Naomi. But if you recall, Naomi was too old to bear children. But we have the whole history of the Old Testament behind us here already, from Genesis all the way up into Ruth. And what what does that history tell us? That nothing is impossible for God. Not even a barren womb. Remember Abraham and Sarah. The impossibility of Sarah's womb bearing a child caused her to laugh.
And yet God has different ideas regarding Naomi. Because along with Naomi came Ruth. And so Boaz has the potential not only to redeem Naomi, but also to redeem Ruth, a stranger, someone who was outside of the covenant of of God, someone who was outside of the nation of Israel. There is hope here. If you think of it in terms of a needle, of of a gauge, the hope gauge was empty when Naomi and Ruth came to Bethlehem. But now the hope meter moves to full. There is someone who can provide hope of redemption in a seemingly hopeless situation. The kinsman of her husband's. Could it be that he could bring in redemption for them? The second thing that sets him apart is his personality. He is no ordinary man. What we might call today an average Joe. There was something that marked him out as uniquely qualified in his persona to be the Redeemer kinsman for Naomi and Ruth. Listen to the words of verse 1. A mighty man of wealth. He was a man of might and a man of means. It doesn't mean that he was just strong physically. The fact that he was a man of might indicates he was a man of valor and courage. He was a man with the inner character and strength that speaks to godliness. That's what the word might is getting after. A man of spiritual courage. A man of spiritual valor. On a human level, then, doesn't, it raises this question, doesn't it? Of what is it that makes a man? It's not external displays of strength. The text here focuses on the inner life. The moral compass. The moral spine. The godliness of a man. And so that tells us that God looks on the heart this morning. God looks on the heart. Just like God looked on the heart when Samuel went to anoint David. What was he doing? Samuel was looking at all these brothers. He was looking at all their strength. He was looking at their leadership capabilities, but none of them was suited for kingship. And God reminded Samuel not to look on the outside, but to look, he reminded him that God looks on the inside, God looks on the heart. That's an important lesson for us this morning. It's not our our heroics, it's not our strength that makes us who we are. But it's the inside that constitutes who we are, a relationship with the Lord, a relationship with Christ. A righteousness that is not our own, but that becomes ours and is reflected in how we walk and talk and live. Moral courage. Godliness that exudes itself to a watching world. That's who Elimelech was. We 
could say he was a good man, a righteous man, a man of inner godly strength. But Scripture also notes he was a man of means, a mighty man of wealth, a mighty man of wealth. So God had given him the means to redeem Naomi and Ruth. To buy back Elimelech's inheritance and restore it to Naomi and Elimelech and her family. To turn the situation of these two widows around. So he had the inner life that characterized him with integrity spirituality with godliness, well-suited for this work. God had also blessed him with the means to do that very work. Then there's his pedigree. Verse 1 introduces him as a relative of Elimelech. He was of the kindred of Elimelech. So he was closely related to Elimelech, not just a distant relative. He was of the clan of Elimelech. That's what kindred can be translated as. He was of the clan of Elimelech. The word clan indicates a proximity of relationship that was closer than being merely of a particular tribe. Society in Israel was ordered in several circles of relationship. You have immediate family like Naomi and Elimelech, and their two sons and daughters-in-law. There's family. Then there's clan, those who are more closely related but not quite as close as, as immediate family. And then there is the tribe, the, the larger circle from which there were various clans. This relative, this kinsman was close enough in relationship to be qualified as the kinsman redeemer for Naomi. But he's also uniquely suited to be the kinsman for Ruth. As we dig a little deeper into the history of Boaz, we see God's amazing grace on display. Read with me in Matthew 1, verse 5, as we read the genealogy of of Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 5, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And who was Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite. Rahab was a prostitute who hid the spies in Jericho. She was a stranger. And yet, she was included in the covenant people of Israel, spared in the conquest of Jericho. She finds her place in Israel, and not only that, she finds her place in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She finds her place in the lineage of Boaz, 
This is an amazing piece of the puzzle as we realize that Boaz's mother was Rahab. He's uniquely qualified to redeem this Moabite woman as well. He knew from his own mother's experience what it was to be an outsider and then included with the people of God. If Boaz was a godly man, no doubt his mother had shared with him how she was spared, how God had redeemed her. Surely, Boaz could do the same for Ruth. And then there's his name. He's not merely a nameless character on the canvas of God's redemption. He's introduced as Boaz in verse 1. His name means strength. How's that for a name in contrast to these weak and vulnerable women as they come into Bethlehem? There was a relative whose name was strength that could turn their situation around. There's a tremendous hope tied to the person of Boaz. He's the perfect candidate to do what is required. He checks all the boxes to help destitute and despairing Naomi. He's a man of peerless character. The air is bursting with, with expectation as this man is introduced. And for us, that expectation should be double. Not just as we read this as history, but as we read it as the history of redemption. There's a, there's a double layer to this, isn't there? Because it's not just about Boaz, but it's about who Boaz pictures as a type. Christ himself, perfectly suited to be the redeemer of sinners like you and like me. And that's the picture that we need to understand this morning and its relevance for us and its application for us. There is a redeemer, a kinsman, in whose person we find not just the hope of redemption, we find redemption itself. Found in Christ alone. He has all the potential in heaven and earth to be the redeemer of sinners. And that's how he presents himself through the person of Boaz this morning. We come to the one who is the greater Boaz, our kinsman according to the flesh. Made like us in every aspect. Tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He is mighty. He's perfect in every aspect. Boaz was still a sinful man even though he's described as as having this, this moral integrity, this inner righteousness. But Jesus possesses that of himself in perfection. He obeyed the law perfectly. He offered himself on the cross for sinners. As a righteous sacrifice. He is mighty in every aspect. 
Not only is He mighty, He has the means at His disposal to transform our spiritual poverty this morning into spiritual wealth that is beyond compare. He is the one who is not merely of our tribe, but of our clan, a close relative. So close, in fact, that He became man willingly identifying with the human race, becoming a servant to redeem us from the power and the hopelessness of sin. His name is Strength. Isaiah prophesies him of Him as the Almighty God. He is the greater Boaz, my friend. He presents Himself in the Gospel this morning. He's able to identify with sinners, with strangers. He Himself was, was set out Side the camp. When he came unto his own, his own received him not. He was despised and rejected of men. He knows what it means to be an outsider. Forsaken by God on the cross. So that we might know the nearness, the fellowship, and the communion with God himself through him. He allowed himself to be part of a lineage like this. Rahab, Boaz, Ruth, Bathsheba, Solomon, Judah, and Tamar. What a kinsman. What a hope this morning. What a salvation this morning that He offers, not just in His benefits, but in His very person. He sets Himself forth in His Word this morning. He introduces Himself, and He says, here I am, the one who is perfectly suited for your redemption. And He says, Come. Come and avail yourself of me, and I will care for you. We sang it, didn't we? Open wide thy mouth, and I will fill it. He's able to save to the uttermost this morning. Because he's uniquely suited to be the redeemer of the backslider and the foreigner the stranger. And so there's hope in the kinsman. Where are you looking for hope this morning? As we reflect on the week past, maybe we looked for hope in the elections, and certainly we expected perhaps a different outcome. But if our eternal hope is placed in man, we will always be disappointed. Scripture comes to us this morning and reminds us again that our hope is found in Christ alone. There is no other rock-solid hope that will prepare us and help us for eternity as we stand before the judge 
No other hope than that which is tied to the person of the kinsman redeemer, the greater Boaz. And so come with all your dashed hopes of this week and say, Lord, here I am afresh. I confess that I trusted too much in man and not enough in you. Maybe you're leaning upon someone else to get into the kingdom. You say, my parents had this or this spiritual experience, and if I don't measure up to that, then I can't enter into the kingdom. I can't be one with the kinsmen. My friend, let me tell you that your hope for eternity is not tied to family members. Their experience is well and good. But what you need is the kinsman. The kinsman, Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer, the one who gives of himself. And so don't lean on the experience of someone else seek to experience this kinsman for yourself. Don't let that experience of someone else stand in the way of tasting and seeing the Lord is good for yourself. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, there's no hope for me. I've sinned too much. If you knew what I did, then there's no hope. Didn't I just say that there is hope for backsliders and for foreigners, those who come from the land of Moab? That's what the word is saying this morning. Presenting a kinsman that is perfectly suited for our every need able to overcome even the worst of sin. He is able to save to the uttermost those that come to Him by faith. He bids you come from Moab to return to Him and find hope in Him. It's in Him. And it's in His grace, as we see in our second thought, there is hope in the the person of the kinsman. There's also hope in the grace of the kinsman as well. Ruth and Naomi settle down. The question of food is front and center. In verse 2, we find Ruth and Naomi dialoguing together as they need food. It is clear that Ruth has not shed her identity as the Moabite. And Ruth, the Moabitess. She's an uphill climb in Bethlehem. Her situation seems hopeless. And yet, in her hopelessness, there is faith. Her faith carries her along, even in difficult circumstances. Her faith tied to the God of Israel. Again, she serves as a lesson for Naomi. She takes the front. She takes the lead. The Moabites' faith 
surpasses that of Naomi. And we see that principle, don't we? Of the point that faith without works is dead. Faith is always active. Faith does not lead us to simply sit back and, and wait it out. And expect that God is going to drop something into our laps. No, faith sets to work. Faith actively uses the means that God has, has given us. And Ruth, the Moabitess, seemingly has a solution to end their hunger pangs. She says with determination in verse 2, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn. She's heard that there is bread in Bethlehem through divine visitation. She goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi. Whether she's asking permission or whether she's simply making a statement, she's determined to go. She acts on the Lord's promise. And you say, well, where's the Lord's promise in that statement? Well, the Levitical law allowed for the gathering of food for widows, for orphans, and for strangers. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23, verse 22. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Ruth has undoubtedly heard of his provision of the Lord for strangers and widows. And she's determined to depend on this provision of grace in the law. You see, these these verses show to us the grace of the law. The ceremonial law provided for the widow, for the orphan, for the stranger. These verses ended with this statement, I am the Lord your God. And so this is who Ruth takes hold of in her need. This wasn't just a mere ceremony. This was God providing for Ruth and Naomi. Even in the Levitical law, we see that God is a God of grace and compassion for the needy, for those who cannot help themselves. And the application is this, that He leaves us food in the gospel, not just the corners of the field, but He gives us the field, as it were, in the gospel. He gives us the rich harvest. He gives us the whole harvest, all of the benefits of His grace. He does that again this morning. He calls us those who are the spiritual equivalent of widows and orphans and strangers to the gracious provision that He's given. Not just in the law, in the ceremonial law, but in the gospel itself. He shows His grace. And then Ruth confesses her dependence on grace. 
She does not know where she will glean yet as she dialogues with Naomi. But she knows that she is dependent on the grace of the, the farmer in whose field she's going to glean. Let me now go to the field, she says, and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. She appeals to the grace of the yet unknown kinsman. This will be the one where she finds grace, not only for food, but for salvation, humanly speaking. And through him, find salvation for her soul in the seed that is coming. And so she casts herself upon the grace of this kinsman, whom we know to be Boaz. If Ruth 1, 15 to 18 is a beautiful confession, this too is a beautiful confession. She has nothing else to lean on other than grace. What about you this morning? What are you depending on for your soul to be fed and nourished? As you prepare yourself this week and you see the sin, the ugliness that lives within The fact that you're destitute and poor and hungry without Christ. Are you dependent on grace alone? That's the only thing that will give hope. The grace that is tied to the person of the Redeemer. After him in whose sight I shall find grace. See, grace is not impersonal. Grace is intensely personal. It's tied to the person of the kinsman. And it becomes personal by faith, by taking hold of the Redeemer and receiving of His grace, confessing dependence on His grace. So will you not come then and glean after the one in whose eyes you have and will find grace? again. He leaves abundant provision behind. He feeds with himself. Oh, come then and rest in that blessed dependence on the kinsman's grace. Don't rest short of him or his grace. And then Naomi responds with these words. She says, go, my daughter, what a change from some time ago where she discouraged Naomi or discouraged Ruth from following her and to return to Moab and to her gods. Things have already begun to turn around in Naomi's heart. She says, go, do this, be dependent on grace. And then notice what she says. My daughter, she owns Ruth as her own. No longer trying to get rid of her, no longer trying to push her back to Moab, but she owns her. And in some sense, expresses that same dependence on grace as Ruth does. Go, my daughter, go. Through Ruth's dependence on the kinsman's grace, Naomi is aware that she is dependent on the same grace. Her bitterness 
is turning. It's turning into the beginning of renewed expression of dependence on the grace of the kinsman who is mighty to redeem and to provide. Perhaps you're more like Naomi than Ruth this morning. You look on the negative side of things. Perhaps because of character or perhaps because of a lopsided view of grace. Misunderstanding the character and the work of God in your life. You approach the grace of God with questions, how can it be? Rather than simple faith like Ruth, expressing trust and dependence, always a a little bit suspicious. What if God in the final analysis will pull back His grace from me? My friend, that is not how the Lord works. And regardless of how you view the character of God, He calls you to view Him according to Scripture this morning. He calls both those who are like Naomi and those who are like Ruth to be dependent on His grace as that place where you find hope for your soul. No matter what your spiritual condition this morning, if you're a child of God, the answer is the same. You and I need and can find hope in the kinsman's grace, the grace of the greater Boaz. That's what he displays for us in his word. That's what he'll display for you in the the table next Lord's Day. There is hope in the person and in the grace that flows from the person of the kinsman. He calls you to find hope there this morning. But there's also hope in his provision, lastly. Ruth enters the fields of Boaz where God's redemptive purposes will unfold in such beauty. And it's there that the kinsman's provision is magnified. But how do we get from ourselves to the provision of the kinsman? How does Ruth get there? Well, in verse 3, we read these words about Ruth, and she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. This was her faith put into practice. She went and she came. She didn't wait for bread to fall down from heaven. She went and she came. Her faith finds expression in her actions. She goes to where the food is, to the field. At the invitation of God's provision in the law, she sees the grace. She finds the grace in the law. She she clings to that grace. She's a stranger, an alien, and a widow. We could say doubly qualified for this provision in the grace of the law. She goes and she gleans. She works. She will meet Boaz as she does so. The one who will become her strength, her redeemer, her husband. 
And you see, this is what faith does in the face of our spiritual need. Also, as we prepare ourselves for the table, like Ruth, we are qualified for this provision in the grace of the law. We see here the goodness and the generosity of our kinsman redeemer, the Lord himself. In his word and sacrament, he provides not just corners of the field, not just what the reapers have dropped by accident, but he offers himself. He comes like Boaz does to meet us in the field, to commune with us, to provide strength for us who are believers to live in this world. This is the hope that he provides in his provision. That's the provision that Ruth saw. That's the provision that you and I need to see by grace. That He is the kinsman. He provides for the needy. And so faith goes, you see. Faith is bold. Takes hold of the promises of the gospel. And it says, Lord, you say that right here. There's provision for me. Faith comes. Faith gleans. Faith eats, you see, drawn by the grace that is in the kinsman and his provision. And so this morning, there is spiritual hope and life in the kinsman's provision. And so there's the practice, isn't there, of faith going out to take hold of what the Redeemer provides. And in his provision, we see providence unfolding. In verse 3, we read, And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging to Boaz. The way that Scripture reads here would indicate that everything's happening by chance. She just so happened to come into Boaz's field. From the human perspective, that's certainly the case. It just so happened that Ruth came to Boaz's field. But from God's perspective, there is no chance. It is God who has orchestrated this wonderful provision for these two women in the fields of Boaz. It is God who in His providence moves everything so that His purpose of redemption can stand and move forward. And there is hope in the providence that's laid out here. To the observer, it might have seemed that it just so happened. But in God's providence, there's a beautiful intentionality that brings Ruth into the orbit of Boaz's world. It's a beautiful picture of how God brings sinners into the orbit of the greater Boaz. Providence draws sinners into the orbit of Christ. Providence serves the cause of redemption. We look at how our lives unfold and we say, well, that's, that was a chance encounter. That was a chance event. That was a one-off. In God's economy, there are no chances. There are no one-off events. All of those are orchestrated in order to bring Redemption. Remember last time I described providence as a rearview mirror. We look in the rearview mirror and then we see what happened. 
In this case, God used His providence of severe mercy to bring Naomi to the place of tender mercy, and here we see it unfolding. It just so happened that Ruth came into this field. Stated in this way to highlight that God is at work. An irony almost. My friend, look back on your life. How has God dealt with you? Whether severely or tenderly. How has He dealt with you in His providence? How has He dealt with you between last communion and communion to come? It's to bring you back to Himself again, isn't it? To bring us back to the place of His full and rich provision for our needy souls. The grace that was operative in this narrative is the same grace that is available today. God's providence serves your redemption, believer. If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you have not found hope in the kinsman, providence is at work in your life as well to bring you to Christ for the first time. So don't discount His providence, but see it as that which God uses to bring us to Himself for the first time or for the thousandth time to to bring us to that place of provision in Himself. That's where the narrative ends for our message this morning. It began with the kinsman and it ends with the kinsman. Brings us to the provider. There's no better way to end than to end with Boaz. The kinsman who will redeem both Naomi and Ruth. He's the provider of strength for this young Moabite woman. She's a stranger. She's an alien. She's a foreigner, but she's come home. She's in Boaz's field. He's her provider. From this point, she can rest in his kindness, knowing that she and her mother-in-law will have food and then some. Boaz is the man, we could say. He's the man. He's the pivotal character who will provide redemption. Her hap was to light on part of the field belonging unto none other than Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Underlining that hope, Boaz of the kindred of Elimelech. She's not only coming into his field, she will come into his home. She will become his wife. She'll be fed from his storehouse and nourished. As close as humanly possible to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And so we end with this picture of Christ again.
underscoring for us the need to stay focused on Christ in this week of preparation. Call to examine ourselves, certainly. Call to grieve over our sin, absolutely. Call to humble ourselves before God, absolutely. Call to repent of our sin, yes. What good are all those things if we fail to take hold of Christ, the kinsman? He draws us into the field of His gracious provision this morning through the preaching of the gospel and then again at the display of the gospel spread out in the table next Lord's Day. He possesses the field. He possesses all that is in it. He does everything for our salvation, believer. He will continue His work in the field of grace. He draws us into the field. No happenstance, but providence to serve our redemption. He draws us into the place where redemption is experienced, where we come to more fully understand the character and the beauty of the greater Boaz of Christ Himself. It's in the field that he speaks to her. It's in the midst of the barley harvest that he communes with her and feeds her with his own hand. It's the best place to be where Christ draws you by his word, next Lord's Day by the sacrament, reminding us that Boaz is willing to be our husband. That Christ is willing to be our husband. To redeem us. What an amazing wonder, isn't it? That when we consider this picture, that Christ, that Christ takes strangers and aliens and ornery backsliders and he, he weds himself to them. He sets you at his table. He puts his banner over you and he says it's love, it's everlasting kindness. He sustains and He feeds and He redeems from hopelessness to find hope in Him. So this is where we end this morning with a view of the greater Boaz. Do not take your eyes from Him. As He continues His work of redemption in your life, child of God, as you deepen in your love and understanding for Him and what He's done for you in Himself. As He draws you to Himself in His Word and through communion, we confess that in Christ alone, our hope is found. There is hope alone in the kinsman and the greater Boaz. 
and in no one else. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank Thee so much for Thy Word, for this display of Thy person and of Thy grace and of Thy provision, all of which just brings us back to Thee again, the circle of experience. Always ending in thy promise and in thy person. As we face a week of self-examination, we pray. As we do that work, that hard work, that challenging work, that soul-exhausting work of examination, of, of rooting out sin, of putting it to death, that as we do that work, our gaze would be upon the greater Boaz. As the late Robert Murray McShane said, Lord, we pray that thou grant us the grace that for every look we take to ourselves, we would take ten to Christ. We pray for those who are utterly hopeless, destitute, living in sin and loving it. Alarm them, O God. Bring them to their senses. Draw them to thyself for thy glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.